Hi, everybody. Wynn Claybaugh here, and welcome to this very important, timely, and necessary interview with this amazing man who I'm sitting with right now, Dr. Carlos Hill. I'm also being joined here today with a very dear friend of over 30 years, Nicole Cumberlander, and I'll uh, spend time introducing both of them right now before we jump into this wonderful interview so that you know exactly who we're sitting here with. And I'm going to read this because there is a lot of really good information here. So Dr. Carlos K. Hill is an author and community-engaged scholar who brings historical perspective to difficult racial events that impact the Black experience and our culture today. And that's a mouthful. And how he's going to break that down for us is, is just going to be so profound. As a speaker, teacher, and leader, Dr. Hill shares insights into the history of race and racism to not only encourage hard conversations, but to empower and uplift communities who are seeking and creating lasting change. Dr. Hill is the author of three groundbreaking books, which uh, I hope he will share with us today. He also serves as chair and associate professor of the Clara Luper Department of African and African American Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Dr. Hill founded the Tulsa Race Massacre Oklahoma Teachers Summer Institute to teach the history of the 1921 race massacre to thousands of middle school and high school students. When I read that, I really want to talk about that, just to, to teach that history to middle school and high school students and their response and their reaction and what they do with that information. I'm excited to hear about that today. Dr. Hill also serves on the boards of the Clara Looper Legacy Committee and the Board of Scholars for Facing History and Ourselves and is actively engaged in other community initiatives working towards racial reconciliation and repair. Uh, Dr. Hill has been featured on Vox's Juneteenth documentary short, has been interviewed on national media, including CNN, Time, USA Today, I mean, this just goes on and on, the incredible work that he is doing. But again, I'm also here with my very good friend, Nicole Cumberlander, who has been in the beauty industry for almost 30 years as a salon and school owner and past president of the Professional Beauty Association. She is also passionate about serving in ministry at the Word Church, being a wife of 30 years and being a loving mother to two beautiful children who I have the privilege of knowing um, since before they were born, right? How old are they? Yeah, 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 yeah. You've known them since before they were born, for sure. <laughs> Life is sweet, man. To, to know that that we get to come around again and again and again on a variety of, of topics and initiatives and in history and, and to share this with each other and to serve each other. Uh, Nicole, I'm, I'm so grateful to you. This beautiful friendship that we have cultivated over the years has served us so well. Dr. Hill, thank you so much for this. And, and a shout out to our good friend, Eric Fulbright, who made this happen, who connected us. And I already know that this is going to be profound. So again, thanks to the two of you. And you know what, Nicole, I'm just going to let you kick this off for us because I, I've seen the question that you pre-prepared for Dr. Hill. And I know that you're going to take us in a wonderful direction. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you again for having me be a part of this. I'm so honored and I am have just been so excited to be able to sit down and have this conversation with Dr. Hill. I just know 
you've just got so much great information and wisdom to share with us. So let's just jump right in. You know, we just are coming up on Black History Month. And I mean, we think that's kind of obvious why we have Black History Month. But can you give us a little history of Black History Month and how it came about? Why is it so important in your opinion that we better understand our collective history? I think that's important for people to know. Yeah, I mean, people often say, if you don't know your history, you really don't know who you are. Mm-hmm. If you don't know your history, then you are you know, doomed to repeat it. Those are, I think, true. But in the histories that I deal with, the history of lynching and racial violence, the history of terror, the history of destroying Black communities, destroying Black bodies, it's a history of violence and trauma. And the reason why we have to talk about those histories, particularly those histories today, is that trauma doesn't go anywhere. That trauma lives in that community. It lives in the bodies of those residents, right? It lives in the air of the community. And so not dealing with it isn't the same as it's nothing there, right? There is terror there. There is trauma there. And that trauma is not standing still. It's growing. It's growing exponentially. There's a sense that, oh, we don't have to deal with that. We can ignore it. And it's just over there in the corner. No, it's growing. It's becoming a bigger problem. And so think about this country that has had a relationship with slavery for 250 years plus. And in that, no real focus on dealing with how that institution created not just trauma for Black people, but everybody in this society. And it's as if we are a family who is traumatized and believes that by not talking to a therapist, not doing anything, we're going to get better. It's just going to happen. It just has to. That's not how trauma works. Trauma grows when you don't deal with it. And so it is so urgent for us as a country to deal with our historical legacies. Right now we're talking about slavery, we're talking about critical race theory, we're talking about how they're harming children. The real harm that will be done to our children is if we don't talk about it, as if we pretend that it doesn't exist. We're gonna re-traumatize that generation. And when I say traumatized, what I mean is these individuals are going to be unprepared to deal with the kinds of issues that this history brings forward. Everything from reparations to affirmative action, you name it. We would be creating people who have no knowledge of why those things are even a conversation and are resentful of having a conversation because they have no reason why we need to talk about it. That's what we do in this country every day. We just push it on down the road 
it's a problem for another day. And oh, by the way, it's just going to work itself out. People are going to be less mad as we get further away from it. That's not how trauma works. <laughs> trauma grows, trauma metastasizes. And so we have to be very careful moving forward how we move forward. We cannot move forward with an idea that, oh, we don't have to talk about slavery because it makes people uncomfortable, right? Is the reason why it makes people uncomfortable, right? Because there's violence, there's death, there's terror there. People shouldn't be happy when they leave a classroom talking about slavery. They just shouldn't. If they do that, you've done it wrong. Hmm. And so this doesn't mean they need to be feel bad. It just means that no one should walk away from a conversation on slavery like, man, I'm glad we got through that. Um, let's never talk about that again. <laughs> right. That's not it, right? That, that's not it. And so my hope is that we get some maturity as a country and realize that pushing it down uh, the road, ignoring it only deepens the problem, only makes it harder the next day to do what we need to do. The mountain is growing larger, y'all. It's not the same mountain 100 years ago. It's going bigger. The poverty in this country, it relates to black people deepening, people of color deepening. The problem isn't getting better. And so we, we need to begin to get serious, get mature about how important history is as a tool for helping us deal with the kind of traumatic relationships that we have in relationship to it. See, as you define it like that, it makes sense to me because there can be historically in a family, there yes. can be family secrets, secrets mm. of, of abuse and trauma that can be generational. They happen to my great grandmother, my, my great, great grandfather. And, and we don't have to talk about it. It's generational thinking that it's going to go away and how you, use those exact same words that this is a, an entire country where we generationally, we have these secrets and this ugly history that we don't want to talk about thinking that it's just going to eventually go away because time has passed. And the, the biggest, the biggest thing that creates that dynamic is there's a sense that that's not my history. My parents had nothing to do with slavery. My grandparents had nothing to do with slavery. I had nothing to do with slavery. That's somebody else's history. Even if we bring it to African-Americans. Well, you know, I know it sounds crazy, but my parents were not enslaved. That ain't got nothing to do with me. That's somebody else's history. I come from Jamaica. I come from the motherland. That's somebody's. That's not mine. We have a real difficulty with understanding when it's not in our face, our relationship with the past, right? If you live in America, you have a relationship with slavery, period. Whether your parents, grandparents, great, 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 because you're here right now. So I have, I have a question. So when I read that in your bio that you go into middle schools and high schools to teach about the Tulsa race massacre yeah. uh, to middle school students, First of all, how do you, how do you teach that? <laughs> Obviously, there's some sensitivity that you have to uh, mm -hmm. apply and, and to to be able to engage them and, and help them embrace the message that you're trying to deliver. Can you just kind of walk through that? Because I have a feeling that whatever you do 
on that mm-hmm. level probably applies to grown adults as well. Oh, it does most definitely. And so I'm a black studies professor, historian by training, working at the University of Oklahoma in the Claire Luper department. And probably five to six years ago, decided that with the anniversary of the race massacre coming, I really wanted to make sure that I bore witness to those victims, those survivors, and those descendants. And I was really trying to figure out the best way to do that. Was it to write a book? Was it to do some talks? What am I going to do to bear witness in a way that helps people to understand my deep commitment to these issues? And so out of a lot of brainstorming and praying and working with my wife and talking with her, kind of just happened upon this idea of perhaps a teacher institute. And the teacher institute, there wouldn't be any students. It would just be Oklahoma educators. And the goal of the institute would be to inspire those same teachers to not just tell the story of the massacre, but really help students understand why this history is so important to today and today's landscape, today's Oklahoma society, culture, and politics. And also, and the most important thing, was we wanted to make sure that teachers understood that when they stand in front of the classroom, it's not just a brain standing in front of children, giving them information. Children see a fully formed human being in all of their complexity. And so teachers have to be mindful of their social and political identities as they are sharing this information because the worst thing to do is to do harm and trying to do good. And so, you know, just making them aware that their social identity as a white person, as a black person, as a Latino person, as an indigenous person shows up in the classroom. And if they're not careful and conscious, it can create negative dynamics. Students can think that you are racist or bigoted by the things that you say or the way in which you act, or they can think that you're sexist, right? Or opposed to transgender. All these identities are present in the classroom and all those identities have to be affirmed and supported as we are doing this work, as we are talking about this history, because this history is violent This history is traumatic and it can trigger people. And so the teacher has to understand all of this when she enters in the classroom before she ever says he or she says a word or they say a word about the race massacre and all that was. They have to do so much preparatory work to prepare their classroom to have a traumatic conversation because having these conversations in classrooms, it is traumatic. They are traumatic. It's hard to talk about death. It's hard to talk about lives being taken. It's hard to talk about these things. But if we don't, we re-traumatize. And so you gotta talk about it. You have to do the work to talk about it so that we can get to the next place, so we can get beyond where we are. And so our whole mission is to inspire teachers to understand the history 
But the most important thing that we give them is the tools to have the conversation with their students at a high level in a way that builds trust, that builds cross-cultural understanding so that we do good and not harm. So those students walk away feeling empowered and feeling inspired and wanting to do something about the legacies of versus turn away from them. They can turn to them and be empowered to do something about them because we've explained to them the import. We've explained to them why this matter, why they should care. And when people care, whew, that's when change happens. There's that, there's that word you've used several times and that's your goal, that, that people care about the history. Mm -hmm. What do they say that popular saying, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And what I heard you just say was preparing the messenger, preparing the teacher to deliver the message oh, yeah. is just as important, if not more important than the message itself. This is the most important work I've done. Wow. I'm so glad to hear you talk about the critical race theory mm -hmm. and importance of teaching that in the schools. For the life of me, I don't understand why people don't understand that, but you're bringing such life to it and shedding some understanding on why it's imperative that children learn this. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we want to always live in trauma? Mm -hmm. Do mm -hmm. we always want to live in trauma as Americans and, and our racial divide? Do we want that? I know people profited off of that. Politicians profit off of it, all media profits off of it. But is that what we really want? <laughs> Americans, is that what we really, we have, and if we do, we gotta be honest about it. We don't wanna do any work connected to the legacy and the trauma. We don't want, we really don't care about this history. We are good. We just need to say that if that's the case. Well, and you know what, based on that, what are some of the, the tough questions? that you're, not only your students, but your students and your peers are asking based on what they're experiencing in today's society? Because it's got to correlate, it's, it's got to connect. You know, the question that I always get is, I'll get two questions. One is, what is the progress? There's an assumption that there has to be progress. Talk to me about the progress. Tell me what's happened since the race massacre, or since, you know, an episode in African-American history that was perhaps negative or was traumatic. And I'm often like, well, it depends on who you ask. If you ask the community, you might get a res certain response. If you ask me, you might get a certain response. Uh, it's a complicated kind of thing, but it's always a, a desire to identify progress. Don't just talk about the negative. And there's another sort of sense that things just get better. Time heals all wounds. No, it don't. <laughs> Not if you haven't done the work to address the trauma. Time will heal it if you do the work, but the work has to come first and then the time will heal. <laughs> and so I think we just have to get honest about some things. Before we started actually uh, recording, you talked about a, a holistic approach to the work that you do. And I, I immediately wrote that down to ask you now exactly what, what did you mean by a holistic approach? 
you know, when I think about that right in this moment, holistically, understand history holistically, I'll tell you a story. For the first 10 years of my career, I was truly an academic historian. I lived in the archives. I, you know, I was just, you know, in archives all across this country, all across this world, trying to understand the history of lynching and racial violence. That was an archival project, right, to understand lynching and racial violence and how it's, you know, been such a plague on these United States. Understanding that holistically for me at that point meant diving as deeply as I could into the various archives, assembling a historical record of lynching that occurred in the Mississippi and Arkansas Deltas, where I am from, but also where I principally study history of lynching and racial violence. That was who I was. Today, I can say I'm different. I'm a historian who's not just interested in the archives, not just interested in the history. I'm also interested and deeply committed to the people impacted by that history, the communities today that are living the legacies of that history. I've tried to get proximate now to those people, caring about them today, not just who they were yesterday, why we are talking about them, I need to be in service to them today. And the history is important as a means by which I can support them. But it's really about caring, not just about the history. I care about what happened to Greenwood in 1921, but I care more about the people who live in Greenwood in 2021 and supporting mm. them in 2021. And so for me, it's been a growth in terms of understanding that it's History is important, but the people in those communities are more important. And so make sure when you're bearing witness, they know that you care. You're not just a historian who cares about their history and only about the, you know, the Greenwood greats, right, uh, of 100 years ago, right? But right here, right now, and I tell people this all the time, Greenwood is as great as it was 100 years ago, right? It's just not all the businesses there. It's not all of the, the wealth that was once there, but the same energy, the same spirit, the same ingenuity, the same hope, belief, resilience, grit that rebuilt Greenwood is still there. Greenwood is still great. And so I need to care about that just as much as the history. And that's been the biggest evolution for me as a historian is really getting proximate to that and understanding that's the real work that I'm doing. And, and you have been one who is writing about lynching and racial violence and, and the history of that. I'm, I'm sure that that makes you a target. And I'm curious to know, and I'm sure that you get a lot of resistance and even people are angry at you. How dare you talk about this? How dare you bring this up? Can I ask you about that? I love it. Okay. <laughs> I love it all. Because I want to, I want to go even deeper than that. I want, I want to hear about the resistance and yeah. and the anger that you bring. You know, how dare you? And then I want to go into your experience as as a black man in this country. Do you have kids? Oh yes, yes sir. I want to talk about them as well. You know, Nicole and I have had these conversations. I've had these conversations with Eric Fulbright. Eric, you know, tells me a story of his son in in a car accident and his, even though it wasn't his fault, he told his son, you know what, get in the car and come home. Yeah. You know, it's 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 not worth it. It's to have you stay there in that experience where I don't feel that you are fully protected. I'd rather you come home and I'll just pay the difference. So 
Mm. You know, I, I want to hear about all of that. Well, you're asking me to pull up a chair when I'll pull up a chair now. Okay. <laughs> talk you through these things now. All right. <laughs> Don't, uh, but where would you like me to start? Just the, the resistance that you get. Well, it's interesting that you asked that. You know, it's been hard to be in, in a state like Oklahoma. I, I have deep gratitude uh, for being at the University of Oklahoma and to even to live in this state. I, I've come to love this state's history in ways that I never expected. I love Greenwood. I mean, I love Greenwood. I never talked like that before. I love Oklahoma City and the history that's there. In so many ways, I'm, I'm inspired by what has happened in this state, particularly the Black community, the, the, the history and tradition that's here in Oklahoma. I am, I've been so moved by it. It's changed my life. Mm. At the same time, I am deeply disturbed by what's happening, not just in this state, but everywhere else in this country, it feels like. And in this state, uh, and I want to set the context here, we have just commemorated the 100th anniversary of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre in the state of Oklahoma. We're only months from that. And in the shadows of that, we have the most aggressive move to prevent the teaching of the Tulsa Race Massacre and everything else that seemingly offends a certain segment of the population. And so to me, it has been extremely frustrating that a state on the one hand has said, the history of the race massacre is important. We should commemorate it. We should care about it. And in the very same breath, try to do all it can to prevent conversations about said history by the anti-CRT bills that by the way, I'm gonna go ahead and say it, is the biggest clown show, this side of the Ringling Brothers. Because if you were to ask to a person in this state, every teacher, can you define critical race theory? I would shudder at how many could actually answer it. If you ask them to name one book, not two, one book related to critical race theory, I shudder you might have less than 1% be able to. And so this is so completely made up. This is so phony that I understand why it's become what it's become, but what I don't understand is how people think they're not really harming their own children in the process, making their children ignorant of these histories. Maybe, and, and I would be happy to hear this, because it would make a little more sense to me, if they're saying, okay, we don't trust teachers to do it, but we're going to teach them at home African-American history. All right, y'all do it. But to not do it at all and to say we're good, we're good not having these conversations given Black Lives Matter movement that's roiling all over this country, all over the world. And at the same time, people are saying, we're going to just stick our head in the sand. And that's going to be good enough, not going to work. Problem is only going to get bigger. So how do you not live in anger? 
I'm angry. Because you're, 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 you're a dad, you're a, you're a husband, you're a human being, you're a good person. How do you, how do you not live in anger? Uh, my dear brother, I am not an angel. I am so angry if you don't hear it in my voice. I'm frustrated. But as a father, I have to keep it together. And, you know, honestly, you know, my children are, are eight years old and they're twins. And you know what that means. They're always fighting. <laughs> they're always bigger. They're always, you know. And so right now I have the luxury, sort of, of kind of focusing on them just being good humans, just just focusing on you be good human. I'm trying to teach you how to be a good human and especially a good human to your brother and to your sister. But at the same time that that's happening, you know, I am giving them little by little. Hey, I want you to know a little bit about Frederick Douglass. Hey, I want you to know a little bit about Harriet Tubman. Hey, by the way, there was a race massacre. I want you to know a little, little introductions to this history. You know, we do. And they really, they've taken to liking to see me on TV. And so I can get them to watch stuff that I'm in selectively. <laughs> it's a process, but I would say my biggest, I try to shield them from this as much as I can, because I want them to have a childhood, a childhood that I didn't have. I want them to have that. I don't want to strip them of that. I want to, I don't want them to be completely, you know, unaware of these harsh realities, but at the same time, I don't want to make these harsh realities something that I center with them on a day in and day out basis, because you know what, I'm traumatized right, from having to do this day in and day out. I don't want to keep that on them because I've only recently learned how to deal with the trauma that occurs to me as I'm doing the work, right? I've only began to understand that. So me foisting that onto my children, I can't. I'm going to give them a little bit, but I'm going to try to do my best to wait until either there's a crisis that I have to address it and or it's age appropriate for them. So right now I'm, I'm trying to do my best to begin to introduce them to these subjects without traumatizing them. And I'm so glad to hear you say that because I think that's some of what people's point is with the critical grace theory and sharing that in schools. So with what you just said, Yes. What does that look like in schools? Because they do, do need to know. What it looks like is we have to trust these educators. Over the last five years, I probably, y'all, have spent more time with Tulsa Public School educators than I have my faculty members. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to tell you, these people are very sensitive to talking about the race massacre in a third grade classroom, what that should be, a fourth grade classroom, what that should be, a seventh grade classroom and what that should be given their age and and, and age appropriateness and what it should look like in a middle school and high school. This is just standard American education. We do this all day long. This is not a story. Mm -hmm. We know how to do this. I mean, we have been doing this. (laughs) It's not even, we just started yesterday and we trying to work out the kinks. We've been doing this. This is not a story. It's just that 
right now, there's a deep resentment for a lot of different reasons of talking about particular histories. Because at the end of the day, this is why this is so crazy. We can't talk about slavery, 1619 Project. In Oakland, in Edmond, I heard the other day, we can't talk about Frederick Douglass. Can't even talk about Frederick Douglass in Edmond, Oklahoma. A school board had the nerve to, to outlaw Frederick Douglass. Now, let's think about what they've just done. Can't talk about the 1619, can't talk about slavery. We can't talk about the Civil War then. The most important event in American history. If it's true that we can't talk about slavery and we can't talk about Frederick Douglass, you gotta talk about Frederick Douglass because Frederick Douglass is the human being that convinced Abraham Lincoln that he had a conscience and that he had to fight and abolish slavery. We don't get that without Frederick Douglass. So you're just, what you're saying is we don't wanna teach American history. We don't wanna teach the Civil War. We don't wanna teach anything that, that we are uncomfortable with how it's going to be portrayed, right? America wasn't always a democracy. It was a slaveocracy. And we need to tell students that. You know, there's this deep-seated idea that America is good and always will be good. And that always will be good is where the resentment comes from. Make America great again, right? That's resentment. <laughs> Don't tell me that America isn't great. And so, these histories of slavery, these histories of Jim Crow tell a different history. And so that's where we are at loggerheads with this. You're trying to get my child to understand a history of America that I am uncomfortable with and I don't subscribe to. I don't believe that we are a nation ever evolving and becoming a more perfect union. We are already a perfect union. So can I ask you a question? If we're addressing the importance of uh, Black history and American history and we just passed uh, Martin Luther King's birthday on the 17th of January. So what are your biggest lessons of the life and legacy of Dr. King? That's, we're going to have to really sit down when we're going to have to sit I down. I thought we already were. Well, that's, <laughs> that, that's another sit down, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing you. Win. I'm going to tell you what's on my heart in, in terms of Dr. King. I did a, Dr. King Memorial Lecture just a couple weeks ago for Luther College, as well as an institution here in, in Norman. And I said the same thing in both encounters. I said that I wanted to give you a proper speech on him, okay, but I can't because something's on my heart. And the thing is on my heart is if Dr. King were to come back to life right now and have the perspective of 1968 looking forward, and he would also recognize that we've created a holiday in his honor and his name, he probably at his death, that was completely unlikely. He could have never imagined that, but we've done that. We've created a holiday in, Dr. King's, not just his name, but in his life and in his legacy. What would Dr. King say about 
a society that's created a holiday in his name that in the midst of a pandemic as, as divided as ever, right? And if you, everywhere you look, there is division. And for nearly 40 years, we have celebrated the life and the legacy of Dr. King. Would Dr. King be disappointed in us that we have used his name and we have come in seemingly no closer to that beloved community that he talked about? What I want people to understand is that if we're going to celebrate Dr. King, we need to do it authentically, not just to celebrate his achievements, which are many, and we should create space for that, but what the holiday needs to be about is living like Dr. King and us assessing how are we, are we living our lives like Dr. King? Let me pull out my book. Let me see. Let's, what did I do last week? What did I do the week for? No, I didn't do nothing for nobody. So I ain't living like Dr. King. So let me, let this, let this holiday be a reminder to me of how I need to live like King, how I need to sacrifice for the least of these like King. King, Dr. King died with probably less than $10 in his pocket when he could have been one of the wealthiest black men in America. There's a reason for that. Dr. King put people before himself. He put the movement before himself. And when we talk about King and when we think about King, and certainly when we attempt to celebrate him, we got to live like that. That's the challenge. That's the ask. Live like King. When we celebrate him, we need to always be saying, am I living as he did? And if I'm not, I'm not celebrating him. That's the key. What are some, some bold steps as a society that um, we need to take to continue to move forward towards Dr. King's dream? And, that, and that's, that's the good question. The point of any conversation, including this one, is, okay, what are we going to do moving forward? What's the lesson here? And you just, Dr. Hill, you just touched on that, that are we living, are we celebrating authentically, meaning are we living the life that Dr. King exemplified, which is, by the way, the same thing as anybody going to any church, whoever you worship or whatever you worship, that's the whole idea. I've, I've been screwing up all week and I'm going to go to church again to, to learn more and hopefully I'll get it right this coming week or I, I'm closer to it this coming week than I was before. At least I'm staying on track. I'm not going backwards. Or, I mean, that, that's the whole idea. We, we have mentors and heroes and teachers to show us the way. So in your words, what, what are the steps? What are the real profound steps that we could be taking? Absolutely. There's no steps. There's a step. There is a step. <laughs> but you, you haven't you haven't seen my planner. Have you seen my planner? I need steps. It's all about. I'll try to make it. Weird. I'll try to make it. You put that planner down, Weird. I'm going to write that? it down. You tell me what to do. I'm going to write it down. Step one. You're you going to be able to remember this, Weird. I'm trying to tell you. Okay. Tell you. All right. My brother, when I said to you that the United States is the wealthiest country in the history of the world. Part of what that means is it's the, also the most technologically advanced society. And we can count Europe in here too, but let's just stick with America. Most technologically advanced, meaning we got a lot of ideas in this country. We got the most expensive university system that the world has ever seen that we leverage day in and day out. 
to keep America the superpower that it is, right? So it's not, we don't have a lack of ideas, right? We don't have a lack of intellect. When we decide we wanna solve a problem, we wanna to go to the moon, we wanna to go to Mars, we wanna build a rocket that can land on a comet traveling at over 20,000 miles an hour, impossible. We figured that out just like that. Didn't take 20 years, didn't take five years. It took us focusing on it and caring about it. It's not, we don't have a deficit of ideas. We have a deficit of compassion and caring. That's the first and only step. When people care, they do. When people care, they do. You don't gotta tell them what they need to do. When they care, they will figure it out. That's what happens in communities all across this country. When one person in that community starts caring about that history, memorials start popping up and conversations start happening. I've seen that all over this country. It just takes one person to care. And that can enable so many more people to care. Let me say one more thing about that. I'm in the state of Oklahoma. And in 2018, I could probably count on my fingers how many people knew the name Julius Jones and how many people cared about Julius Jones and him being in prison. 2018, 2021, there are 6 million people who have signed a Justice for Julius petition. And not only have they signed, a, 6 million signed a petition, you had on the day that Julius Jones was gonna be executed, students from across this state, white, black, and otherwise, who walked out of those schools in Oklahoma. And so what happened between 2018 and 2021? One person, C.C. Jones Davis, because this young black woman cared, six million other people were enabled to care, be in position to bear witness to a dear brother, a friend of mine, I'm so grateful that I know him, enabled one person, enabled six million people to care, and those six million people saved Julius Jones's life. Wow. So when I say caring is the currency of the world, not dollars, not euros, the real currency of this world and what moves the world is people getting activated through compassion and caring, it's mostly about themselves, but sometimes about other people. And so that, that's the step. We have to enable people to care. And that's what I do. That's what I try to do. That's why I'm, I know that that's, that's the magic. That's the magic. And so when I go into that classroom every day and when, and when I interact with those teachers in those institutes, my voice raises, my voice crackles, because I know what I'm trying to do is move those people. I'm trying to unsettle those people. I'm trying to get those people to care in ways that they didn't care when they walked in. And if I do care if they know more, I, should, I shouldn't say if I don't care if they know more, I do care if they know more, but what I care more about is what their heart says to them after they leave. If their heart is right, if their heart brain is right, I know when they walk out of that door, I don't have to worry about giving them steps 
what you need to do to be anti-racist. They're going to figure it out. They, people are as smart as they want to be when it comes to issues of race and racism. Amen. From my perspective, and, and uh, <laughs> Nicole and others know this because, my God, uh, Nicole, how many times have I called you in the last couple of years? For, for little things, Nicole, am I am I off base here? Am I am I saying the right thing? Am I saying it the right way? Am I am I doing the right thing? Because I, I want to move from listening and learning to action, and I know that a lot of people feel that way. And sometimes we're just afraid. Like, am I am who who am I going to offend? Am I going to get canceled? Am I going to get called out? Am I going to be read the wrong way? But I'm not the type that I, I'd rather take that risk than to do nothing. I'm, I'm a good person. I know I'm a good person, mm. and but, but I still make mistakes. So I, I don't want to just sit back and for, for fear of not saying it the right way or not doing the right thing. I, I want to do something. And maybe that's what I'm asking. Yeah. What is my, my move? And do I just move forward and, and make the mistakes? And okay, I'm sorry. I screwed up. I learned. I called Carlos. I called Nicole. I called my friends and they got me back on track, but, but just keep on making the mistakes and moving forward. What do you tell me? That's, that's the work. That's the work. Like that's what you just described to me is the work. <laughs> that's not the extra work. That's the work. The work. Calling Nicole, talking to me, getting that clarity. That's the work. You're doing it. You're taking the steps when, because <laughs> you care, you care. You're figuring it out, right? This is really authentic. That's it, that's it, yeah. That's the work. You care, so you make a call to make sure you're on the right. You're, you didn't like, well, I don't care. Maybe she took it the wrong way, no. Let me make sure I did not offend. Let me make sure if I did offend, I apologize. That's the word. So, you know, what's the hope that you have? The hope, first of all, as, as an educator, as a historian, if that's what you sometimes call yourself, as an educator, as a mentor, but also as a father, what's, what's the hope that you have? And how are we going to get there? I'm a humanist. And so I love people on their best day. And I love people on their worst day because I love people, right? And as a historian, but also a humanist, I know that the, the oppression, the racism, the bigotry, that's an expression of the human condition, right? That's an expression of the ways in which the societies and the relationships that we created within those societies are at its core been deeply problematic, toxic, and they need to be reworked. But the structures that we create and the interactions that those structures create are not us. We are much bigger than the structures and the institutions that we create, right? And so the hope is in our deep capacity to grow and adapt and to be better in the process of. And, and so 
I'm a historian and by virtue of being a historian, I play the long game. I'm not so concerned about critical race theory. I am y'all, but I'm thinking about what does American society look like in 200 years when we have a society of 800 million? Inequality in a society of 800 million is gonna look and feel different than one with 300 million. Wow. And if people believe that we can just keep pushing the problems down the road as this society gets bigger, more complex, and more poverty, I don't wanna live in that America. I don't want my children to live in that America. If we had a population of 800 million in the same statistics, the same socioeconomics, I would, this country couldn't last another week. <laughs> so when I say the problems only get bigger, I really mean that, <laughs> I really do. Right. And I think anyone who's paying attention knows that. And so my hope is in King's dream, right? It's in that beloved community. It's in the, the belief in the capacity of human beings to grow, to adapt, and in growing and adapting be better than they were the day before. And as a humanist, even though at times like this, it doesn't feel right <laughs> to say that, <laughs> I know that is our trajectory as humans, right? We couldn't have survived this long, right? without a deep capacity to grow, adapt, change, come together, right? In so many ways, I wish we could go back to a hunter-gatherer mentality where everybody mattered, right? Because you needed everybody, right, to hunt. You needed everybody to protect, right? We, we need that hunter-gatherer mentality again where everybody matters because everybody do matter. You know, to wrap things up, first of all, I, I wrote that down, that you're a humanist and that you love people. I mean, I've seen that, you know, people love animals. And so they raise money for animal causes and health and wellness and rescues and they, they foster pets. And it's, why? Because they love animals. And, and, and maybe that was the message that we need to hear. We, we need to love each other. We need to love humans. Yes. I love, love people. people. Amen. And and sometimes we live in a society that if you say something that I don't agree with, I no longer love you. I unfriend you. I don't follow you. I don't allow you to follow me anymore. The conversation is over. We're done because I disagree with what you said. Yeah. We need, we need to love humans. Yeah. And for me, I'm always signifying, right? If you listen, and if you listen to humanists, you always hear them signify my insistence on calling people that I don't know well, brother, is to signify our relation or our relation that I'm trying to have, brotherhood, sisterhood, right? We are connected beyond our race, right? Beyond our nationality, right? There's a deeper human connection. And by saying brother, sister, my dear, you're trying to tap into that. I love that. Love that. Well, you've called me brother many, many times throughout this. So I feel pretty good about it right now. Mm. <laughs> Nicola, to, to wrap it up, Nicola, 
as we are entering Black History Month and people listening to this, uh, another time that is not during Black History Month, what's, what's your hope through all this of why we're doing this and sending out these messages? You know what? I think Dr. Hill, he just summed it all up. You know, this was such rich conversation and mm. I'm just so deeply moved to have been a part of it. And I know that anybody that's in earshot to share this message, you know, you, you were so on point when you said, you know, people move when you, when you care. Mm. I mean, that just, that hit home. That is so, so true. And it just, it crosses everything, race, creed, color, everything. If you just care and it only takes one person to care, to spark a movement. Yeah, and, and I say care, and I choose that carefully. Um, what I really wanna say is love. Mm. Because what is love but a deep care and concern Absolutely. for somebody else? Yep. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about love for real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to love each other and find, even when it's hard, find ever ways to, right? Because what does Cornell West say? Justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is what love looks like in public. We are trying to learn how to love each other. That's what we're really trying to do. And our love languages are off right now. (laughs) We ain't talking to each other. (laughs) But that's what we're really trying to do. As a humanist project, anyway, figure out how, because that's the magic, right? We could have a billion problems facing us. We could have tons of polarization. But if there is a deep care and concern rooted in our culture, it gets figured out. Right. <laughs> and so it's not the problems at all. It's us who don't love and care about each other enough to care about the damn problems. Hmm. That reminds me of somebody said that the secret of a long marriage, don't divorce. <laughs> <laughs> hey. I can't <laughs> divorce you guys. We got to figure this out. Mm. Dr. Hill, Nicole, thank you so, so much for your time together. When I say this is an honor and a privilege, I mean it. For for me as well, profound and emotional and uh, a bit of a roller coaster, which I I love that. I love a roller coaster. I love love every emotion. So thank you for that. Well, I hope we can do this again sometime when the occasion calls. I look forward to that.